Well, as you can see, today we're going to talk about creation. Uh, the, motiv the motivation for that is that, you know, we've been talking about um, the, the about God Himself for for quite some time now. Uh, now we're ready to, and we talk, also talked about mankind, and so now we're ready to to begin um, to move toward uh, to actually talk about sin. But in order to talk about sin, we have to talk about you know the original sin, the the fall of man. And, but in order to do that, we kind of need to set up context. And so today we're going to talk about, about creation. Um, I may actually throw in another lesson next week that gets a little more into what's called the creator-creature creator, uh, creator distinction, um, or that might just be a part of the, the plan. I'm not 100% sure what we'll do there. But within the next week or two, we are going to be talking about um, the fall and then the implications of that and, and talk about sin for probably two or three weeks. And then once we talk about sin, we get to the fun stuff where we talk more about um, salvation, which is, I know, everybody likes talking about salvation a lot more than we like talking about sin. So, uh, <clears throat> so let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, uh, thank you for the time that we have to come together this morning. Uh, be with us as we uh, discuss uh, your, your creation and uh, you as creator Help us to only um, understand and say and remember uh, what is true and forget uh, those things that are, that are not true. Again, we love you. We trust you. Um, all of this is uh, to your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, creation. But I'm probably going to take a little bit different angle uh, on this topic than most of you have, have heard before. And if the clicker will work, give me one minute. That was a little anticlimactic, wasn't it? There we go. All right. So first, let's talk about the context of the creation narrative. Now, question for you. Who was the original audience of the creation narrative? And by, by creation narrative, I mean, you know, the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Who was the original audience? Israelites, when? The Exodus. Okay, right after the Exodus, right. So what historical event had just happened or was in the process of happening? Well, that would be the, the Exodus, just like uh, Tom said. So what historical events were about to happen? The, the wandering. They were, uh, it's probably written during the, the wandering in the, in the desert. Uh, but they were getting ready to enter. At some point, they were going to enter into the promised land. They were going to set up shop there. What's that? Their descendants. Oh, well, correct, yes. Israel as a nation would, but the, that generation would be their descendants. So great point. Uh, so they're going to cross the Jordan, go into the promised land, and set up shop there. And like Tom said, a big part of, of being a, a nation, um, a sovereign nation, is that they... Uh, they had to have the law, and God was going to give them the, or God gave them the law, and that was the way that they were going to, you know, run the show, so to speak. Okay. So, um, during this time, what religious culture dominated their world? Polytheism, right? And and actually, we'll be more generic than that. We'll just call it paganism. Right, and we'll define a little bit more what what paganism is um, here in a few minutes. Um, you know what? Actually, let's go ahead and talk about paganism right now. Right? 
So, <clears throat> what's that? Because Randy walked in. Yeah, a, I had to wait for him. So, yeah. All right. So, pa- paganism. You know, we, we kind of talk about paganism loosely as almost being like non-Christian or non, you know, or back then it would have been like, you know, non-Jewish. But paganism has um, all, all of these different pagan uh, cultures, religions all over the world have always had certain things that they hold in common. So a part of that is that um, uh, man, mankind, nature, and, uh, and the gods, plural, uh, are all um, a part of, of uh, something that came into being, right? Um, so they don't look at uh, their gods as being eternal and being ultimate. What's ultimate is this impersonal thing uh, that one scholar called the meta-divine realm. And what, is it, what it is is it's this, this fabric that kind of uh, rules everything else. You, can, you know, the Greeks refer to it as fate. Um, I guess in Star Wars, we, only, we might refer to it as the force. Um, but, but, the, uh, but paganism always has this impersonal force that is at the top and glues everything together and holds everything together. It's, it doesn't have a personality. It's not a who, it's a what. Okay? And then below that, that you have the humans, you have nature, and you have the gods. Right? When Jan and I went to Mexico a few years ago, we went and, and um, checked out some um, temples, uh, Mayan temples. And I think... Uh, was it Chechen Itzu? Is that the way you say it? I, I can never pronounce that word very well. But anyway, they, what the, one of the things that they, they talked about was when they would sacrifice a human, that human would go up into, to be with the gods or the god, and, um, and so they would kind of be in that realm, and then they would come back to earth as a hummingbird. And so you see this continuity between uh, between mankind, between kind of the divine realm, and then between uh, uh, hummingbirds. So this idea of humanity, humanity is just a part of, of nature, and is the lines are blurred between nature and the gods, and, and um, the nature and the gods and mankind. Okay, and so it's a it's a it's a strange way of thinking to us, but it's what perm- has permeated most of human civilization, the most human civilization. And so we're going to look at a specific example of it here in a couple of minutes. But it's also the sort of thing that the Israelites would have been steeped in, what they would have been immersed in when they were in Egypt, was, was this kind of thinking. So a question comes up, what do you think the Israelites knew about God as they exited Egypt? Okay, um, right, as they were exiting, when you have the, the actual plagues. How about just prior to the plagues? How about before Moses came? Okay, what had been passed down. Um, did they have, you know, where do we go to learn about God? And I know the Bible, but think about the different, different um, writings that we have. We have the Psalms, okay, which were written... You know, 500 years after the Exodus, right? We, you know, we have the Pentateuch itself, which was written um, when 
when they were in the wilderness, so they didn't have that either. They didn't have any of the Old Testament, okay? And so they did have some, um, some stories that were passed down, um, but ultimately they were given all of this uh, by Moses. Moses, you can think of, pulled it together. Um, God, um, you know, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down, you know, those first five books of the Bible, and then he gave them to, um, to the nation of Israel. Um, so in reality, Egypt, or I'm sorry, the Israelites did not know very much at all about God when they were in Egypt. And if you look at up there, those two, um, those two, uh, verses or those, those two passages point to the fact that Egypt was very pagan. They were, I'm sorry, Egypt was very pagan. The Israelites were very pagan when they were in Egypt. They were, um, worshiping idols, and they were worshiping foreign gods. So the punchline for all of this is, um, actually, we'll get, I'm sorry, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, so why would the creation narrative be so important for the Israelites entering Canaan? Remember, we talked about the law a few minutes ago, okay? The creation narratives reveal God, a God, the creator God, who is not just a local deity. He is the God of the universe. He's the God who created the world and everything in it. And so when the Israelites receive the law, this creation narrative is the foundation of the law. It gives the law its, um, its authority. It's the idea that this law is not coming from just some, you know, little local deity out there. It's actually coming from the one creator, God, who has the ultimate authority in the world. Make sense? Yes, sir. Right. Yes. Having broken all that down, they needed a you know, more foundational understanding of, okay, who is this God who right. did all this stuff? Absolutely. Right. Yep, you're absolutely right. That's good. Um, so, by, by the way, when, I walk up, when you're talking and I walk up on you, I'm not trying to be intimidating, um, believe it or not. Um, it, it's so that you, you can be picked up in the microphone. Okay. So, uh, but no, that's good. It's, that's a part of um, Genesis in a part of, of the stories in Exodus, that it's like hitting a reset button with the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. That they're not, again, they're not dealing with a God who is just another God out there. He is, he is the ultimate creator of the, of the world, right? And so the punchline for all of this, where I got ahead of myself a few minutes ago, is that when Moses delivered those five books of the Bible, when he came back, Actually, when he came back to Egypt, he was a missionary. I think we can think of him as a missionary. He wasn't, uh, it's not like he was a, um, a pastor that was just giving, you know, his believing uh, congregation just a little more information about who God is. It's like he was, in a sense, I think, like he just said, hitting the reset button and telling them about a God um, uh, something very, very new to them. Now, there would have been some believers, but by and large, they weren't, they weren't believers. They didn't, they didn't really know who God was, okay? 
All right. So one of the things that's important to understand, so far so good? Yeah? Okay. So one of the things that's important to understand is the way Moses goes about this. Okay? And it's what I'm going to call polemical theology. And I think in order to really understand Genesis, when you read Genesis and the, the words that you're reading, to really understand what they're saying, I think you have to grasp this notion. Okay? Um, so let me give you, I think, a clearer example, and then we'll talk about Genesis in a few minutes. Okay? The Apostle Paul, if you open, if you open your Bibles to Acts 13, you can look at... Um, uh, I think it's uh, verse 17 or so. He is, Paul is giving the gospel to a group of Jews in a place called Antioch of Pisidia. And when he does, he begins his gospel presentation by introducing the God okay, whom they all serve. And he said, the God of this people, Israel. And then he begins to walk through what God did in Egypt what God did with Abraham, what God did with David, what God did with all the patriarchs, right? The thing about um, Paul is he knew who his audience was. So when he was giving the gospel to the Jews, he was speaking in terms that the Jews could understand, right? He was appealing to things that they could understand. He wasn't changing the gospel. What he was doing was giving the one true gospel in a way that the Jews could understand, Okay, now, fast forward four chapters, he's now in Athens. Athens was not a hotbed of Judaism, okay? It was lots of pagan philosoph or philosophers and polytheism and things of that nature, okay? So how did he begin his presentation to the, um, to the, the pagan intellectuals on Mars Hill in Acts 17, where the first words that come out of his mouth? The God who created the world and everything in it, right? That's not the way a typical Jew would talk. That's not the way he would present the gospel to the Jews. That's the way he presented the, gospels, the gospel to a pagan audience who did not know who God was. The God who created the world and everything in it, okay? He's using terminology that the pagan intellectuals can understand. As a matter of fact, once you get into his presentation, he actually even quotes a uh, couple of pagan poets. Um, in him we live and move and have our being. And um, I'm sorry, I forgot the other one, right? So we have three elements in presenting the truth in an alien culture. The first one is the one I've just been talking about. You proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ in a way that can be understood by your audience. Okay? You have to use terms that they can understand. If he, if he went into Athens and started talking about um, Abraham and what God did in Egypt, they wouldn't know what he was talking about. So what he's doing is um, using, again, terminology and a, a way of thinking that they can understand. But what you have to do is you have to subvert the audience's reigning worldview. Okay? In Paul's case, what Paul did was he said, uh, God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. What does that mean, and how did that kind of um, 
talk against the, the pagans? The question. Right, absolutely, right? They believe that um, these gods, um, so-called gods that they served, that, that when they sacrificed, they were actually feeding the gods. And the gods needed uh, human hands. They needed human sacrifices in order, order to live, okay? What Paul is telling them is God is not like that. Don't mistake him for one of these um, one of these pagan polytheistic gods that you guys serve. You'll be making a tragic mistake if you do that. And so, um, so what he's doing is he says, okay, he's, pr- he's using, he's speaking in a way that they can understand, but at the same time, he's subverting what they believe. He's subverting their, their overwhelming worldview. Does it make sense? But then third... You can't give your listeners room to absorb the gospel into their own ideas. That's the sort of thing that happens all the time, right? If you talk to a Muslim and you, you talk about you know, forgiveness of sins and you know, the ministry of Christ, what they do is they try to turn Christ into just a prophet, just a, 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 you know, some kind of teacher. If you talk to somebody who's like new agey, they'll say, oh, you know, Jesus was a um, they'll, absor- well, they'll absorb him into what they, what they believe, right? And what they end up doing is denying who Jesus actually is, okay? So Paul um, would not allow them to do that, so he was using, you know, again, subverting their, um, he was subverting their beliefs, and he was talking about the resurrection and things of that nature, which he was completely blowing their minds is what he was doing. Okay, and it says at the end that some believed and, and some didn't. Some mocked and some some believed. Um, so this is a um, our three principles by which one we can all I think learn from when we when we're talking to um, an unbeliever, regardless of whether they're an atheist or they are a um, you know a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jew or whatever. We need to talk to them in a way that they can understand, okay? If we start whipping out a bunch of Christianese, they don't know what that means, you know? They don't know what uh, dispensation is or probably don't know what atonement is and propitiation and all of these exotic words. They don't know what these things are. And if we begin to use terms that they don't understand, then they're not going to understand what we're saying, Okay? Now, it doesn't just apply to us. It also goes back to and applies to Genesis because Genesis was a very um, polemical book. What does polemic mean, polemical? Written against. against. means written against, right? And so if you study polemics, you're studying like how to argue against, how to debate, that sort of thing. Um, Jan thinks that that's what I majored in in college, but it's not. (laughs) All right. Okay, so... Set the tone. Now, now what I want to do is, uh, is we've established that Moses was writing against something when he wrote Genesis. And I believe that to really have a solid understanding, I mean, absolutely, you can come, you come away with Genesis um, just with a surface reading, understanding that God is the creator of the world and everything in it. That he's the, you know, the top of the food chain, so to speak, right? But to really, I think, appreciate the beauty 
of what, Gen what Moses was writing. I think it's important to understand some of the things that the, Egypt, that the Israelites actually believed when they were in Egypt. And so what we need to do is look at what some of those pagan beliefs actually were, okay? So this is called, what we're about to go through is a story, it's a creation myth that goes back, I don't even know how many thousands of years, okay? Um, it would have been um, known, you know, around Mesopotamia, kind of that area, and, and probably even parts of Egypt and stuff, uh, when the Israelites were in Egypt, um, probably even when Abraham was there. I would imagine it was there as well, okay? When he, when he was in, in Ur. Uh, so, Enuma, Enuma Elish, okay. So again, it's a creation myth, pagan creation myth. So it begins with um, two entities, Apsu and Tiamat. Now, if you say, what are these things? It's difficult to say. Um, they don't really describe them all that well. They're, uh, they're kind of, uh, Tiamat is described as kind of like a, maybe a dragon sort of thing, but they're also associated with water. One of them, I get it backwards, one of them's like salt water and one of them's fresh water. Um, but somehow they have something to do with water. Um, but they're two strange beings, right? As their waters begin to intermingle, I always kind of think of a whirlpool for some reason, a new generation of gods is produced, right? So this intermingling of the waters clearly has some kind of weird sexual connotations about it. But I, again, I can't really explain that. I don't really think I want to, even if I could. Um, so you have a new generation of gods that are produced. Um, the children, the, the, I don't know, teenage gods or whatever, began to disturb the sleep of their parents, Okay, so Absu, the dad, uh, wants to kill them, but Tiamat, the mom, objected. Okay, I see smirks on some of your faces. You're going, what in the world are we doing? There's a point here, okay. Um, you know, so I think of a bunch of, you know, I don't know, gods, weird-looking gods and togas, and, you know, they're upstairs, and dad's like, turn that music down. So, anyway. So one particular god, the god of wisdom, Ea, uh, learned of Apsu's desire to kill him and his siblings. So he killed his father in a preemptive, preemptive strike and placed his throne on Apsu's corpse. Okay? So here we have, so far we have two things that are associated with essentially every creation myth that's out there. Sex and violence. Those two things are always present not one or the other, but always both of those things are always present in creation myths. Yes, ma'am. That father for some reason also seems to be very bad fathers yeah. seem to be pre prevalent as well. Okay, I, that I, that wouldn't surprise me. That wouldn't surprise me. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but Aya, but Aya killed his dad. Right, and uh, and you're right. Yeah, Absu, I think probably gets a bad rap because he didn't actually kill the kids; he just wanted to. So, um, all right. So, thank you for that, Bruce. Um, so, Tiamat was enraged. That's the mom was enraged by the murder of her husband, and sought vengeance with the help of a demonic horde led by Kingu. And then you have like I don't know, 
a lot, like a whole chapter of describing this 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 horde, uh, this demonic horde, and they're like frogmen, all these crazy looking strange things. Um, and so Ea realized that he was no match for his mother, so he challenged the divine assembly, you know, all the other gods. By this time, there's a whole bunch of them, and he's seeking a champion. So have you ever heard of Marduk? You know, not, not, the, uh, not the big great, actually, it's Marmaduke, sorry. Uh, Marduk, um, he's described, if I remember correctly, he's a big fellow. I think he has four arms and four eyes. Just a really strange thing, right? Anyway, Ea's son Marduk uh, stepped forward and agreed to fight his grandmother. I, I love that. That might be the greatest thing I've ever written. Agreed to fight his grandmother on the condition that once he defeated her, he would be made king of the gods and king of the universe. Okay? A fierce battle ensued, and Marduk killed Tiamat. Now, you remember a few minutes ago, um, I said something about the meta-divine realm? It's like that force sort of thing. Well, magic, which is, think of Jedis, right? Magic is the manipulation of this meta-divine realm, okay? Marduk used magic to defeat his, his grandmother and kill her. And so that's one of the things that the power of gods come in the, the, the ability to manipulate this thing. They're not actually powerful in and of themselves. So Marduk cut Tiamat's carcass in half and used the pieces to create the firmament, firmament, that's the outer reaches, and the foundation of the earth. But the gods complained to Marduk, saying that they would have to engage in unceasing toil. At this point, the, the stars are out there, and the star, each star is an individual god. Okay? Um, the gods complained to Marduk, saying that they would have to engage in unceasing toil, in response, he fashioned mankind out of the blood of Tiamat's second husband and commander of her army, Kingu. So congratulations, you and I are created for the purpose of being slaves to the gods so that they don't have to engage in unceasing toil. And by the way, we are made from the blood of a demon. So question for you, how do you think a government when you have a, have a population of people that believe this, and then you have a government, you have a king or something that is trying to rule these people, how much dignity do you think his subjects have? How much dignity do you think you and I can have for one another? What is the value of a human life in a society like this? Right? It's tragic. Tragic. So the gods were grateful. And so they showed their gratitude by building a shrine to Marduk in the city of Babylon. It was called the Gate of God. And the story ends with God, the gods praising Marduk, who was the, he ended up becoming the patron god of Babylon and um, carried forward, and I think Assyria, but I'm not sure. So that is the Enuma Elish. Now, right now, if you pick up your phone and you Google Enuma Elish, uh, as always, the top is going to be... Um, Wikipedia, but your number two response is going to be something called uh, the World History Encyclopedia. And if you look and read the article on the Enuma Elish from the World History Encyclopedia, it will say that Genesis basically stole all of its ideas from the Enuma Elish. Right? 
They, as a matter of fact, a lot of people even call it the Babylonian Genesis. And it's the idea that somehow, you know, Moses or whoever, uh, not Moses because he didn't really exist, is what they would say, but um, that, that Genesis came from the Jews sub, uh, hijacking the Enuma Elish and, and kind of creating their own version of it. Okay? And it's essentially the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I get enraged every time I see that article, so I had to, I had to stop looking at it. Right? But what I want to do is talk about some of the differences. So first of all, any comments at this point? Comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, great, great question. Um, well, the first thing is, is that um, the Enuma Elish was written on seven tablets. And so since there's seven tablets, and then there's the seven days of creation, then clearly Genesis stole the seven, you know, the seven days came from the idea of the Enuma Elish. There's also this idea of water, and at the beginning of, of Genesis, it says that um, there was water, you know, uh, that the Spirit was, was hovering over the, the waters of the deep sort of thing. And so, um, and also the, the, uh, the sun, moon, and stars were created, right? So clearly that came from the Enuma Elish also, right? But that's what you're talking about, right, is the creation. And so, yeah, go ahead. Dated, it would have been, um, you, you know, no. Um, I used to know this, but it goes back like at least 2,000 years. Yeah, so it's been around for a while. It was, uh, yeah, you'll catch me. I'll, I'll tell you next week, but yeah. It also depends on who you ask. Yes, and I do believe it was. And, but you'll understand, and I think we can be certain that it was, but I think you'll kind of understand the relationship between the two as we, we go forward here. All right, so Genesis versus pagan myth. The gods themselves had to be created. Marduk, who even Marduk, who was the, the top dog, so to speak, uh, he was the head of the ba Babylonian pantheon. He does not exist at the beginning of the story. Okay? So, the, again... They don't have the concept of an eternal God or an um, omnipotent God or an omniscient God. In other words, they, they have no idea who, who God is. The gods are clearly limited. They develop plans, but those plans may be thwarted by another God. The gods are amoral. Some gods are nicer than other gods, but they are not really good or righteous or holy. And they are very capricious. You never know what they're going to do next. You know, they just kind of jump around all over the place. They're unpredictable. All right? Humans were created from the, uh, uh, to free the gods from tedious, menial work, and the gods care nothing about them. The creation narrative in Genesis does not contain any political or national content. What I mean by this is um, a lot, of time, a lot of times creation myths were kind of backed in, so to speak, in order to um, bolster up like a king, right? Um, 
and it was for you know kind of the, the purpose of making the, the people subject to them. But the creation narrative in Genesis does not contain any political or national content. There's not a single hint or, uh, of Israel, Jerusalem, or the temple. It is no more Jewish than it is Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, or, or Egyptian. And so what I mean by that is when you, when you, it, you know, it doesn't say, you know, in the beginning God created the temple in Israel. Or in the beginning God created the tabernacle or anything like that. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so, and then the story explains how Israel came out of that, one nation among many. But again, the apple of God's eye. Yes. When you refer to the creation narrative, you're talking about the first 11 chapters. Actually, two, two chapters, two, okay. two or three chapters, yeah. Um, but loosely, it could be all of Genesis for, for that matter. And so, to be clear, Genesis represents a clean break with pagan mythology. It was a radically different message. It's a radical, you know, it's the truth. It's a radically different thing than, than anything that anybody had ever seen before. All right. So, questions so far? Absu and Tiamat? You know, actually, what's funny, you know, if you're asking who created Absu and Tiamat, those first two, that's a great question. I, that's actually a question that I was like, okay, where did they come from? And it, it doesn't really address that, right? Um, the way that, you know, you know, a lot of skeptics will say, okay, well, who created God? If God created everything, then who created God? Well, God is eternal, you know? Um, Apsu and Tiamat are clearly not eternal. Why? Because they both died. Right, so there's some some weirdness there. It's very um, unsophisticated, I guess you could say. Right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a great point. It's uh, a tendency of human thought that everything just just came out of sludge, and that mankind is nothing special. Right? All right. So, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This whole idea of just starting off with a, a, you know, a statement like that is bold. And I mean, you and I are used to it. I mean, even before I was a, a believer, I knew that verse, right? Everybody knows that verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, but it would have been radical when... Um, at the time of the, the Israelites, when Moses delivered this to, the, to them. So the earth was, for, uh, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this idea of form, uh, formless and void, right, or without form and void, um, the idea there is um, it, it's, it's emptiness, but it's almost like an ominous emptiness, Right? Um, think of wasteland. Think of, uh, I, I tend to think of, <laughs> this is stupid, I, I, I get it, but uh, a piece of chewed up gum in a ash, dirty ashtray, right? It's just this, it, it's, you, you think of something that is, is worthless, just indistinguishable gray matter, you know, is kind of the way that I think about it. So the earth is uh, form, uh, without form and void, and there was a darkness over the face of the deep. Okay? This idea of darkness, you and I don't think that much of it. 
But back in the ancient world, um, darkness was really something scary. It was something to be terrified of. Has anybody ever been out like in the forest or anywhere at night and you don't have any lights and you hear stuff, right? And you can't just flip on your light and, and, and look at it? It can be pretty darn scary, okay? And that was the way that they lived. The best that they had was like torches. Um, we've got flashlights and floodlights and headlights and traffic lights and street lights and all these different lights. Um, they had moonlight and they had torches, and that's about all they had. So if there wasn't a moon out or if it was cloudy, um, it, you, you would lose your life if you, if you got outside of, of the city walls, okay? And, you know, because robbers and bandits and wild animals and stuff were what's out there. Yes, sir? Yeah, the, the deep was also a, yes. a big mystery. Absolutely. And very feared. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it says uh, darkness was over the face of the deep. Right? Clearly, that's talking about kind of an ocean, like a world ocean sort of thing. And, you know, like Stuart said, uh, especially, you know, the Jews didn't much care for oceans. Who's the, the only, um, who's the only Jew that we can think of in the Old Testament that went out into, into the ocean? Or into the Mediterranean, basically, right? Who? Jonah, right? And what was Jonah trying to do? Run away from God, right? And that's the place to do it. You know, if, you, if you want to run away from God, you go out, go out in the ocean, right? Because it's this big, scary, ominous, ominous place. I remember first time I was studying this, I was sitting in a hotel at the, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, I'm sorry, in Galveston, looking out over the Gulf of Mexico. It was one morning, it was kind of hazy outside, and the water was all gray. And I'm looking out there, and I'm thinking, if I take away you know, National Geographic, and I take away all the stuff I've seen on TV, and I take away, you know, modern science, so to speak, and I look out there, it's like, that would be terrifying to go out there, because you don't know what's out there, you know, and you hear all these stories of, you know, sea monsters, and, you know, and then all of a sudden this big tail comes up, and, you know, what in the world is that thing, and you don't realize that it's a kind of a harm, you know, it's just big, but it's har a harmless whale, right? Um, so my point is, is there, there's, it seems a little ominous at this point. Because what God did was he, God didn't just, um, you know, create everything at one time. He, did, he didn't, like, you know, creating a model, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to add this piece, now I'm going to add this piece, and I'm going to add this. It's almost like I think of a, you know, he's called a potter quite often. And a potter, um, what they do is they'll take a, a chunk of clay and they'll throw it on their potter wheel and then they begin to work. Well, I kind of think of God as doing that. Of course, he didn't take a piece of clay from a potter, you know, from a, a bigger chunk of clay. He just said, boom, there's clay, right? And he got his potter wheel spinning, and then he started, um, he started with the raw material, and then he began to uh, work it. Now, this raw material but would be terrifying to a human being, okay? It's not the sort of environment that we, we could live in. Um, but the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters, right? Now, I remember there's a commentary that's really, really popular, and the, um, the writer of the commentary said this hovering, this is, you know, I think, it, I, I've actually heard this explained to me, oh, this was so cool, listen to this. Uh, the hovering can actually be uh, rendered as vibrating, as if uh, 
the Holy Spirit was vibrating electromagnetic radiation uh, into the earth. And, you know, I thought about that, and I'm like, you know, well, what does that mean that the Holy Spirit is? Are the Jehovah's Witnesses right when they teach that, that, that the Holy Spirit is like, um, is like electricity? That it's, you know, he's this impersonal force that he's not really a, a human, you know, or not, a, clearly he's not a human being, but he's not a, not a person. And so, you know, I started kind of, it didn't sound right to me. So I started digging, digging into this topic a little bit more. And this idea of, of hovering, it, it means, you know, don't think of a helicopter, think of a bird kind of hovering over the, the, the face of the earth, right? And, or face of the waters, I should say. And, then if we go to the end of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, um, Deuteronomy 32 says, He, that is God, found him, that is Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. Now, you remember this formless and void, right? And I said wilderness, emptiness, gum in an ashtray sort of thing. Well, that is the same exact words that are used here that are waste of, um, waste of the wilderness. It's the same words. Okay. Uh, God encircled Israel. Uh, he cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. The apple of a person's eye is what they cherish the most. Okay. So we're talking very affectionate sort of language here. So he says, like an eagle, um, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, uh, that flutters or hovers, that's the same word, over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on, on, on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Okay? And so all of a sudden, when we realize that the way the Jews would write stuff is they would have like this parallel. You look for like these parallel words, and they're, they're having you know, kind of parallel meaning. And if you look at the Pentateuch closing with this idea of the Holy Spirit nurturing and caring for Israel as they're in this wilderness, this, this wasteland, um, then you can take that and it, it's a very, I think it's a very similar idea that the Spirit of God is caring for the, uh, the creation before it is really even a creation. In my mind, it, it's, it's a beautiful uh, idea of God caring for his creation before human beings are even put there. Does that make sense? Or am I completely losing everybody? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. All right. Okay, so formless and void is an important concept because the whole idea of six days is structured around that. Um, days one through three address the formlessness um, Day one, you have light separating from darkness. Day two, you have the expanse separating waters from uh, waters above and below. And then day three, you have dry land and vegetation. So what he's doing is you have this nothingness. He's starting to give it form, okay? But it's empty. So four, days four through six address emptiness. He gives it uh, day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, the fish and the birds. And day six, the land animals and mankind, Okay. So formless and void is kind of the structure of the way the six days, uh, the way God created the world in, in six days. All right. Now, little polemic theology here. 
Genesis 1, 14 through 17 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And this is just one example. Okay, this is just one small example. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them, uh, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Okay, let's stop there. Okay, so what is the purpose of the lights in heaven according to Genesis 1? Ultimately, it's to separate the day from the night and to serve as essentially a calendar, right? Ultimately, they are there, the heavenly bodies are there um, to serve man, to serve man, to serve as a calendar you know, for the seasons and, and that sort of thing. In the Enuma Elish, what's the relationship of, the, of those heavens, the lights, and mankind? Mankind was created to what? Serve them. Okay, so what um, uh, Moses is doing here is turning uh, paganism on its head. Okay, he's flipping it around. He's saying, you know, we're not here to serve it or them. They're here to serve us. And again, it's a radical departure from paganism. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Now, question. What's the greater and lesser light? Sun and the moon. Do you think that the Jews did not, or do you think Moses did not have a name for the sun and the moon? Absolutely he did, right? They had names for them. Why do you think he didn't name them here? Exactly. They were objects of worship by the pagans. And what Moses is doing, he's saying, yeah, those balls of light basically in the sky, yeah, don't worship them. I'm not even going to name them, right? Um, so, for example, the, the moon was called either Sin or Nanar um, in Mesopotamia. And so you had these different moon cults, right? And so... Um, a, a, a person who is a part of that cult reading this is reading, okay, that's my God, the lesser light, and that light was put here to serve, uh, to serve mankind, and M Moses has such so little respect for it that it didn't, he didn't even name it, okay? And so it's an important, there's some important ideas here once you understand what the Israelites um, were used to in their time. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'm going to jump over this. We, we covered um, the creation of man a couple of weeks ago. So God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Um, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. All right. So question, what name is used for the creator in chapter 1? How do we refer to him? What's that? God. God. Elohim, yeah. In, in Hebrew, it would be uh, Elohim. Um, God slash Elohim is kind of a generic, a, a generic reference to God, right? Think about unbelievers. They'll say, do you believe in God? Or, you know, 
uh, or your God or, you know, something of that nature. People use God as like a, they always have as well, used God as a generic name for, um, for God, okay? How about chapter 2? What name is used? The Lord. Yeah, absolutely. The Lord or the Lord God, okay? Lord, the word behind that um, uh, would be, um, would be Yahweh, okay? And then in, you know, if you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, um, that's actually, um, uh, would be uh, Yahweh in the, the original Hebrew, okay? So why do you think that there's a difference between Genesis 1 and, well, actually, I'll tell you what, I'll ask that question in just a second. So is there any particular part of creation that is emphasized in chapter 1? Maybe a little? Mankind, maybe? A little? Clearly, it's the, the creation of man is the pinnacle, but there's no real emphasis, right? You have the, the, you know, the, the seven days, um, God's creating the sun, moon, stars, he's you know, filling the void, and all, all these different things, but it's a, it's a, it's a broad net. It's a, like a panoramic shot of God creating the world. Okay, or creating the universe. How about chapter 2? It zooms in on what? The garden and the creation of man. Okay? And so pretty much the whole chapter is, is, is about that. So what happens is you have this generic name for God with a wide panoramic, more general shot of creation in general in Genesis 1. Okay, and it's, so it's almost like a preamble to the book of Genesis. And then you have, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, you have the, um, a more zoomed-in shot of God and his relationship with mankind. Okay? So it's more personal. And so it uses his personal name as opposed to a more general name. Because you and I, yeah, we'll refer to God you know, as God, but we'll also refer to him as, as the Lord, you know, or, you know, my Lord or my Savior or my rock, Redeemer, kind of that sort of thing. All right, so Genesis was written primarily to a people group who were immersed in pagan, pagan mythology. Um, established, Genesis established that there is, in fact, a God who created the world and everything in it. It is written in a way that speaks against the various pagan creation myths. Genesis sets mankind as the pinnacle of creation rather than relegating us to slaves of the gods. And Genesis introduces us to the spirit of God and it hints at the plural nature of, of the Godhead. At the conclusion of the creation accounts, everything is good. Death, disease, and suffering are unknown. The man and the woman are in a harmonious relationship with one another. The man and the woman have direct fellowship with their creator. What could possibly go wrong? All right. So next week we'll get into um, next week we'll get into the fall. And kind of one of one of the things that you'll I, I was, I've been studying some, some other stuff here lately, and 
one of the things I kind of realize is, um, and it's nothing earth-shattering, but we have Genesis 1, which Genesis 1 is kind of a, you know, like I said, it's kind of like a preamble to, to, to everything else, right? Then Genesis 2, uh, chapter, or I'm sorry, Genesis 2, verse 4, um, kicks off this, um, this new, um, you know, a second creation account that is not contradicting the first one, but it's complementing, complementing the first one because it's kind of giving a different perspective. It's like a more personal perspective. If the first one is a panoramic shot, then the, you know, like I said, the, the, the second one is, is more of a, a zoom in sort of thing. So, you know, at the end of chapter two, everything's, everything's good, harmonious, direct, you know, direct relationship between the creator and his creation. There's no sin, that sort of thing. Chapter three, we get into the fall. We have the fall of mankind. Everything goes to, to hell in a, a handbasket. And then chapter four is kind of the, the outworking of that, where you have Cain uh, murdering Abel, and you know you have just you know things things really go south from there. So I've began thinking of those three chapters as like a three act play, right? It's a historical narrative. Don't get me wrong; it's a historical narrative, but it's almost like it's organized around a three act play. You have the kind of the beginning, then you have the conflict, and then you have kind of the outworking of the conflict. But what's it missing? It's missing the the climax, right? It's missing the climax and, and, and like Stuart said, the, the resolution, okay? Well, you know, Jesus is the climax. You know, Jesus is the climax and then we're, you know, we're still kind of waiting. I think we're still waiting for the climax that is his second return, but then after that will be the, the, the resolution. So it's almost like Moses wrote a three-act play that, you know, Jesus is going to finish up, right? Um, and that's, the beauty of kind of our whole Bible kind of, kind of tie, tying in together. That's an oversimplification, but hey, it, it works for me, right? All right, any questions, concerns? No? Cool. I condensed about three lessons into one, so you might have picked that up. Um, if I confused anybody, please let me know. Um, I, I want to you know, clean it up next time. Um, other than that... Um, you know, hope it, hope it was profitable. Stuart, you mind? Adam. Cool. Father, thank you for uh, giving us your, your creation account that, that sets the record straight and uh, it reveals to us the truth of, of how you created the world. And, uh, Father, we thank you that um, though we corrupted the world with sin, you provided redemption through your Son. I pray that you would continue to use uh, your word to uh, reveal truth to us this morning as we worship you and, and study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.